When you're in a tough time, who do you trust? Who do you turn to? And what do you do? Let's talk about that today on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. Hello again, and welcome to Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Tanner. Well, maybe today you're in the midst of grief. Someone very close to you has died, and it's hit you like a ton of bricks. That's the place the friends and family of Lazarus are in. As we turn back to John chapter 11, you might even be surprised to find out that Jesus cried as well. Today, Pastor Ed will help us work through the stages of grief and provide biblical encouragement for the tough times we're bound to encounter. Take your Bibles and open them to John's Gospel, chapter 11. We are taking just a few weeks to cover the entirety of chapter 11. In this very difficult time in the life of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus from Bethany. They're very good friends with Jesus, and crisis has hit their home in the form of a sickness in Lazarus. He is sick, and from the, the weight of the word in the original language, even if we didn't have the whole story, we know that he's very sick, very uh, painfully sick that it will lead to death. But from, as we studied from the entirety of the chapter, we know that not long after, as they find out their brother is sick, they send help to Jesus, who's in the area of Jerusalem. Not long after, they, they send for help, Lazarus dies. And they're coming to terms in this season, this time where we are in the section we left off in verse 24 last time. They're in the midst of deep grief because their brother has died. There's a lot of questions that are raised in this chapter, and among them is, who do you trust in tough times? Who do you turn to? What do you do when tough times come to your life? Because if there's anything that we know, we know that tough times will come. We can expect them. We not only know that by a personal experience, we know that because it's promised by Jesus himself. He says, in this world you'll have tribulation, little t. You'll have trouble. You'll have difficulty. This sin-sick world of ours, we're going to have the difficulties of sin rub off in our lives. Whether it's our own decisions or the decision of others, we're all going to face difficulty. He says, but be of good cheer, Jesus does. I've overcome the world. So we can go through with confidence and strength that God is going to strengthen us, walking us through the reality of tough times. But where do you turn? For Mary and Martha, they turned immediately to Jesus. It was a natural response. They knew that he was God. They believed that. And they believed that he could help. In our time last time, we learned that Jesus delayed his coming. And the title of our message was, God's delays are not necessarily his denials. But he delayed, and in that delay, and from the human perspective, that was the time period that Lazarus died. And great mourning has come to their lives. Jesus described the last days like this, the days in which we live, I believe, 
while I don't believe we're in the great tribulation period, we are in the time leading up to a great tribulation, capital T. And Jesus described the days like this in one place in Luke's gospel, chapter 21. He said in verse 25, there'll be signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars, and on earth. And he said, there'll be distress of nations, a heavy word, that word distress, with perplexity, which has the idea of confounding confusion. People can't wrap their minds around the situation. The sea, the waves are roaring. And notice in verse 26, he says, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things that are coming on the earth for the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then they'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power, great glory. And when you see these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Tough times. Uh, in the last days, Jesus said, distress of nations, perplexity, men's hearts failing them because of the situations that are coming upon them in the great tribulation. But I see as we pull away from that, those are similar things that go through our lives all the time. Distress, confusion, perplexity, difficulty, pressure, tough. And among the tough things that we face on earth, I can think of really no tougher time on earth personally and painfully than the death of a loved one. The death of someone close to us, a mom, a dad, a grandmother, a grandfather, maybe a great-grandma or a great-grandfather or a son or a daughter. Very hard and very difficult. The pain of grief in the loss of a loved one goes down so deep, the devastation can be so thorough that we can't even begin to describe it. And for those that have gone through that and would share some of the things that they're feeling and thinking, many of us wouldn't be able to understand because it's so profoundly personal and painful. Now, I'm thankful for those that have dedicated their lives to studying this topic and preparing us and ministering or serving us in grief. I'm grateful because they have found out quite a bit about the process of grief, and experts tell us that there are several stages when it comes to grief different stages that you face. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to jot this down, whether it's personally applicable to you today or it's by way of preparation, so that you're not surprised when these things come into your life. They're very normal, even though the feelings themselves are very abnormal and unusual and scary at times. The things that you're feeling and going through in the pain that you're experiencing, whether it's grief or not, are very normal. It doesn't make you an abnormal believer in Jesus Christ. It doesn't make you a second-class believer in Jesus Christ. It's just a revelation of your humanity and in your desperation, your need to depend upon the things of God. So here in the death of a loved one are the different processes and stages of grief as you process them. Because when you lose someone, the immediate feeling is a great feeling of ripping and tearing away that's truly impossible to push down or ignore, though many people try to do that for a season. Eventually, these things will come out. And it's much better for them to come out earlier than to try to deny them and, and, and try to ignore them and push them away. Stage number one when it comes to grief is the stage known as denial or shock. God has created our bodies in such a way in our minds that when a crisis comes, we often will go into a state of shock where we're unable to process everything at one time and it's more of a self-preserving thing for our bodies. And along with shock 
is the immediate denial, and you may find yourself saying things that this can't be happening, this didn't happen, and you're feeling the weight of that and, and just denying it happened to move on to make it through a day or two. You might even find yourself thinking this is a dream or in some cases a nightmare. And that's a predictable stage. It's usually the first thing someone feels at the sudden loss of a loved one. The second stage, after the shock settles in, is the stage known as guilt. Taking on a personal responsibility for the loss of the loved one. Things like, if I would have only been there, I could have done something. I could have helped. If I would have just done this, and I would have just done that, and that too is not an unusual feeling to have. The third stage of the process of grief is known as the anger stage, where you become upset and mad, and that emotion starts to come out. Anger mixed with a little bit of blame, where you gonna begin to blame, you know, if, why didn't the doctors do this, and why weren't they there, and why wasn't, some, many times it gets turned back on a personal level, why wasn't I there? And why didn't I prevent that? And if I was only there, and that too is predictable. Then the next stage is a time of great depression and sorrow. As your feelings are coming to the surface and you're having to deal with all the things that are going on around you and depression begins to sit in and you could also describe that as sorrow gripping your heart. It's the reality of the situation and all of the feelings that you're going through as you face this difficult time. The problem with the stages is that we can't really look at them as predictable and in order and sequential because everybody's different. Everybody processes grief differently. Everyone responds differently. You've come from a different upbringing. You have a different way of looking at the world. And so you aren't able to, to go from stage to stage uh, and say, well, I'm in this and now I'm done with this because you can go through the process of grief and then a memory or a date or a smell or a song, they'll bring your body back to as if it was like yesterday and then it starts all over again and you begin to think, wow, I thought I'd made progress and I haven't made so much progress and it's, it's just, it's more than a human being was really designed to handle. The final stage of grieving is that stage known as acceptance. Because through the first, you know, the first stages, uh, even as they might even overlap and all come at the same time, there's a sense of hopelessness. There's just this sense of this isn't right, this isn't the way I planned my life, this is not what I wanted, and, and yet there is time. Now let me just say this, there is a saying in the world that says, hope or time heals all wounds. That is not true. Only Jesus Christ can heal the wounds that you have in your life. It's not time. Although over time, God will do a work. For sometimes it takes, for some it takes a longer time. For others it takes a shorter time. But let me tell you, friend, time does not heal all wounds. Only Jesus Christ can heal your wounds. And if you're trying to handle the process of grief and difficulty outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, these things are only going to be 10, 15, 100 times worse. That final stage is the stage known as acceptance, where you begin to accept the new reality of your life. And hope is starting to be restored in your life. It doesn't necessarily ease the pain all that much, but you realize, and God begins to show you that moving forward, 
you know, you start to think, you know, things you say, you know, if, if so-and-so was here, this is what she would want me to do. And if my loved one was here, this is what he would counsel me to do. And you begin to accept the new reality of your life and move forward in continuing on life in the name of the Lord and in the memory of our loved ones. And you say, Ed, now why are you sharing all this with me? Well, I'm sharing it with you because the Bible is a real book filled with the stories of real people like Mary and Martha, Jesus, Lazarus, with real pain and real difficulties, just like you and me. This isn't some foreign book or a novel or a bunch of fairy tales. When you open up chapter 11, this is the real story of a real family experiencing real grief in the very immediacy of their loss. We're just within four or five days of the loss. We know that of the time that we studied previously. That when they found out he was sick, they sent for Jesus for help. Said, we need help. My brother is sick. And Jesus made the purposeful decision to delay his coming. And sometime in that delay, their brother died. They buried him as it was customary, and they entered into the seven days of intense mourning where the family and the friends would gather together and openly weep and wail and mourn the loss of Lazarus. There would also be those that would be hired. That was part of what they did to come alongside, not only to weep and to mourn, but to comfort the family. They were there. And this is where we are in chapter 11. This is a real family experiencing significant pain in their lives, not unlike some of you. And not only that, their culture was a hopeless culture. (laughs) They had a relationship with God through the old covenant. They've been introduced to the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. So they have a very strong faith. But the culture in which they're in was a completely anti-God culture, pagan culture. You know, the Greeks, when they, when they viewed death, they viewed death as just a ceasing to exist. When they viewed death, the, the philosophers of the day would say things like this, and I quote, once a man dies, there's no resurrection. Or, I quote, there's a hope for those who are alive, but for those who have died, they are without hope. Another philosopher wrote, and I quote, when once our brief light sets, there is one perpetual night to which we must sleep. And even on their tombstones, it was found quotes like this. And I quote, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. Now, why is that important? Because although Mary and Martha have a strong faith in Jesus Christ, their culture doesn't. And culture has a way of pressing and pushing on and in on our thinking. You were raised in a culture. You, unfortunately, in the last couple generations, have been raised in an anti-God culture a culture that is considered postmodern or post-postmodern, or a culture primarily that has completely removed God from every public, every public input, every public forum no longer inserts God into the equation. You live in a culture that, that doesn't believe in the Bible, doesn't believe in the entirety of the Bible, doesn't trust its veracity, You live in a culture that's even shifting and changing not only to be non-God, but actually anti-God in so many ways. And it shouldn't surprise us because the ruler of the the age, the ruler of the end times, will be known as the Antichrist. And so there's a shifting. You go, well, what, what does that mean? Well, understand this. Very much like Mary and Martha, you have a strong faith in Jesus Christ. You're born again. You love God. But you live in a culture 
And the culture in your day is pressing in to change your mind about the things of God. The culture, the music you listen to, the culture, the magazines that you see, the culture, the television shows you choose to watch, the culture, the movies, the culture, the education system, on and on and on. The messages are coming to us over and over again. And if you don't think the culture influences you, you've got to step back and really ask yourself, man, how is the culture influencing you? Because living in a culture, man, the Bible even tells us not to be conformed. You know, be careful not to be conformed to what you live in, what culture you live in. Conform is a big word. In one translation, it translates that passage in Romans to not allow the world to press you into its mold. And so we have some th- beliefs that we carry around that were given to us by the culture and not by the Lord. And Mary and Martha have to deal with that too. They're living in a culture that's very dark and dreary, and they're having to think it all through. You know, you may not believe what the culture has to say, but if you keep watching the same stuff over and over again, you're going to have to battle that in your mind. You're going to have to dismiss it and submit to the Lord. And that's where they're at. That's the kind of chapter that we're in. We're not here today, nor are we here any day, just for the simple theological head knowledge of the Bible. <laughs> Although that's great. That's, what, that's where belief begins, is the knowledge of the truth. But the knowledge of the truth is going to lead to our behavior. What you believe will dictate how you behave. And so it's good to have the right belief, but realize when you read of Mary and Martha, as we do many other people in the scriptures, man, they're people just like you and me. Different time, different culture, same challenges. So with that in mind, let's pick up now where we left off. We'll we'll, we'll go to, let's say, verse 22 just by way of overlapping our time last time. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you, Martha answers. In verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And here's the key. Do you believe this? Jesus is sharing yet again another I am statement. If you've been with us in our study through John, we've seen a lot of different I am statements. And that's no small thing that Jesus is saying because when he says I am, as we learned before in Exodus chapter 3, he is declaring that he is God. Because that's what God told Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Moses is like, who am I going to say is sending me? And he says, you tell them that I am is sending you, the becoming one. And if you're taking notes, let's go through, um, because we haven't done this in a while, let's go through all the I am statements to see how Jesus demonstrates to us his deity, God in human flesh. In chapter 4, verse 26, he said, I who speak to you am he. In chapter 6, verse 35, verse 41, and verse 51, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. In chapter 8, verse 24, he said, if you do not believe that I am, in chapter 10, or excuse me, chapter 8, verse 58, remember he said, before Abraham was, I am. Chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 10, verse 7, I am the door. Chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 13, verse 19, that you may believe that I am. Chapter 14, verse 6, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Chapter 15, verse 5, as we'll be there soon enough, is I am the vine. This is a profound statement of deity, and I'm glad that in the midst of such great pain, Jesus doesn't say, I was. I was the resurrection and the life. Speaking of some past tense, almost as if we missed it. We missed it. I was the resurrection. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I will be the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say, I will be. He says, I am. I am there presently. I am the hope of the resurrection and the life. The real question is, do you believe me? Do you know throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, God reveals himself by his name. And by his name, we learn a new attribute of who he is and how he relates to us in our lives. Like God is not some distant deity that just sort of started the world and then took off on his own. He's very involved in our lives, very involved in his kids' lives. And we learn from his names in the Old Testament that he reveals himself in ways according to our need. For example, if you've walked in here today in need, God says to you, I am the becoming one. I am there for you. I am with you. For example, maybe you came in with a need that's financial, or you have a need of wisdom, or you need help. Well, according to Genesis chapter 22, verse 14, God reveals himself as Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. I'm like, okay, Lord, thank you. You've promised me that. Or maybe you came here today and your need is protection or comfort or a covering. Well, God revealed himself in Exodus chapter 17 as Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner, my covering. Maybe your need today is peace. And who doesn't need a peace of heart or a peace of mind from time to time? Well, God reveals himself as Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace in Judges chapter 6, verse 24. Are you isolated? Are you feeling isolated today or alone? Like nobody seems to care or Nobody seems to know what you're going through. Well, God reveals himself as Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. He's with you. Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 35. Is there sickness in your body? Did you recently receive a diagnosis from a trusted doctor that has sunk your heart and you need, you need and want a healing in your body? Well, God reveals to you himself as Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. And it struck me in an earlier service that what a great study. I'm going to have to do it one day to take the revelation of God and the names of God and show how Jesus fulfilled that in the New Testament. Because I can think of, I can think of episodes in my mind. My mind was racing, uh, thinking of all the different episodes where the fulfillment of God in human flesh, he came and he revealed himself in each one of these ways to different people in their lives. You're listening to Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor and part of a study in John's Gospel. If you joined us late or would just like to hear this message again, turn to AboundingGraceRadio.com or you can listen through our app as well. Search for Ed Taylor in the App Store or Google Play. And we also have a podcast. Look for us where you get your podcasts. If you take a brief moment to write or call, you know, that would make our day. Let us know the station you're listening to and if today's study was a blessing to your life. We'd also love to pray for you. You can email us through our website at aboundinggraceradio.com by clicking on contact. 
Abounding Grace is made possible through the support of our listeners. And when you give a donation of $25 or more to Abounding Grace, you're invited to request a copy of E.M. Bounds on Prayer. We know we're to pray, but if you're like many, you don't do it nearly enough. Or when you do pray, it's just a mindless repetition of a phrase you've come to use. Well, this book contains some of E.M. Bound's finest writings on the subject of prayer and will help you see what a blessing communication with God truly is. I think you'll walk away with some valuable insights that you can apply right away to your prayer time. To donate and order this today, call 877-30-GRACE. That's toll-free, 877-30-GRACE. You can also order it through our e-store at calvaryco.store. It's your generosity that helps us provide the teaching of God's Word on stations all across the nation. We're constantly hearing from listeners that have been helped and are growing by God's abounding grace. Thank you for standing with us. Making a donation to the ministry is easier than ever through our website at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Tell a friend about these daily studies, and then be sure to join Pastor Ed Taylor next time for more teaching from the Gospel of John. That's right here on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado.